Please open the book of God to 1 John, the first epistle of the beloved disciple. It is a common and frequent question that I get asked. How do I know that I'm one of God's elect? When the election and predestination of God are emphasized as much as we do in our church, that should be the response of our hearts. How do I know that I'm one of God's elect? It is a reasonable question. It is a good question. And the Bible knew the question would be asked and the answer would be needed. So it gives us plain matter on the subject answering the issue. How can I know that I'm one of God's elect? The answer is found in the pages of Scripture and it's not found anywhere else. There is no soul winner on earth that can tell you that they know that you are saved by something that you have done. You need to have the evidence and the proof in your life of a true child of God who has been elected, justified, and regenerated. Last week, I preached to you about death and how the Lord Jesus Christ has destroyed death and so that it can be mocked by believers. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But when we think about death, dying, and eternal life, the question should come, how do I know that I'm one of God's elect with my name in the book of life? And shall be ushered into heaven. And shall be delivered from the claims and power of death. How do I know that I'll be delivered from the second death? Which is the lake of fire. There are answers in the Bible for that. There should be no confusion. There should be no doubt. And there shouldn't be fear. When a child of God is taught and lays hold of the promises and the descriptions that the Bible gives us. There shouldn't be those things. And so by faith, we can lay hold of the promises of God, and by faith we can believe the descriptions, and thus have hope and confidence in that day that's coming. If there are any verses that frighten you, please ask me about them. There are good answers for every verse that sounds like you can lose your salvation, or that the elect stand in danger of losing their salvation. Ask me about them. And we'll give you answers. Today is not going to be to deal with problem texts. They've been dealt with before, and I'll deal with them as you find them. If you come upon a verse that bothers you, email me, call me, visit me, and we will go over it and show you that that verse is not teaching that any of God's elect are going to be lost, or that anyone that truly trusts Christ and lives a godly life is ever in doubt about eternal life, because they're not. If you want more detail, then refer to the sermon outline of the sermon series that was recorded entitled No Fine Line, which was preached three years ago, in which we went into more detail on this subject. In 1 John chapter 5, the apostle wrote these words in verse 13 by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 5.13 These things have I written unto you, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. 
The disciple here tells us exactly why he wrote the epistle of 1 John. He wrote it to believers. The whole New Testament is written to believers. And he wrote it to believers so that they might know that they had eternal life. He is dealing with the assurance of eternal life in this epistle. And he wrote to encourage them to even believe more on the Lord Jesus Christ, which was a part of their assurance. Now, if you've read the epistle of 1 John, you know that faith by itself is of little value. In fact, if you read the rest of the New Testament, faith by itself is of no value. Because the devils believe, and there are lots of believers in hell. For instance, in John chapter 8, it says that many believed on him when he spake these words, John 8, 30. But then in verse 31, Jesus turned to them and said, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They became highly offended at those words and tried to kill him. And he explained to them that you are not real believers. You are children of your father, the devil. John eight forty four. The devils believe and tremble. Faith is not sufficient to get you to heaven. True faith is an evidence of God's elect. But without good works, you can't prove true faith to yourself, to God, or to anyone else. Because it's proven by good works. So when we read 1 John 5.13, we remember what has this apostle already written in the first four chapters. He's written that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is a necessary evidence of eternal life. He's written that righteousness is an evidence of eternal life. And he has written, most of all, that love of the brethren is an evidence of eternal life. So it's those three things that he's already taught. So when we get to the 13th verse, we understand in its context that he's he's simply mentioning the first of the evidences. And to that evidence, we are to add other evidences as he explains and describes in this epistle. Jesus told his apostles before he sent them out into the world, he said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. There is immediately another Good work applied to faith. Because a faith without baptism is no faith at all. It's not sufficient faith to prove and give evidence that you have eternal life. Now the thief on the cross was not baptized, but he expressed faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord. And that it would be his memory in heaven that would result in his eternal life. And he was not baptized. But if you believe and refuse baptism... It shows a wayward, ungodly, unscriptural faith. Because baptism is the answer of faith toward God for what he's done for us. And so it says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And we don't understand that verse as two conditions for eternal life. We don't understand that verse as two instruments or means of eternal life, but two evidences of eternal life. Faith is an evidence of what God has already done in your heart. Because without being born again and having a new man, you would never exercise faith. Faith requires a new man. The old man has no faith. Even the Spirit of God cannot move an old man to believe on Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that very plainly. For the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, and neither can he know them. 
because they are spiritually discerned. You have to be given a spiritual man before you can even believe so that faith is an evidence of eternal life. It's not a condition. It's an evidence. Everything that I'm going to teach you today are not conditions. They're not instruments and they're not means. Those are theological terms for getting your own way to heaven. Right. One way or another. God has saved us by his electing grace in Christ Jesus who died for us and the Holy Spirit regenerated us by his power according to that eternal purpose of God. And it's because of those operations of God that we are able to believe, we are able to keep his commandments, and we are able to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling which he worked into us. This is the gospel message. But it's going to tell us what those good works are and I hope to encourage your hearts, by looking at them, that you can lay hold of them in eternal life today. Let's go to Second Peter chapter 1. You know what's in Second Peter chapter 1, but let's just read it briefly here to remind ourselves that God knows the question we would have. And he's answering it for us. How can I know I'm one of God's elect? Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 10 is where I'll read at this time. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the evidence of election. That is how you can know whether you're God's elect or not. The list of things found in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11. And we're going to come back to that list before the day's over. But I want you to know, and I want all the young men in this assembly to hear, lest you ever be led astray. Faith is not the evidence of election. If you do not give diligence to add things to your faith, you have nothing more than a devil has. You cannot prove your faith without your works. James chapter 2 is extensive and clear about it. Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. That is a man with the evidence of eternal life. It says right here, If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. If ye do these things... Do you know how many evangelists there are today that say, there is nothing you can do? Now that is true if it's defined. There is nothing you can do to earn heaven. There is no condition you can fulfill to earn favor with God. There is no instrument or means that you can use to gain eternal life. However, it is these things that show that you are one of God's elect, which this second epistle was written to, and which the first epistle was written to. The elect of God. Because the first epistle began in verse 2 by saying in the first chapter, Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you. It's written to God's elect. But this is how we make our election sure. This is going to be very simple today. Children, you're going to be able to understand if you'll pay attention. And if you have already heard these things or if you are confident of your salvation, or if you think you know where I'm going, then let's see if you can store all this up so that you're able to give an answer of the certain words of truth 
to those that would ever ask you about how they can know that they are God's elect. There is no harm in you hearing this again. I'll tell you why. Because of what Peter told me right in this context. Look at verse 12. Wherefore, because these are the things that prove that you are going to heaven, wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Verse 15, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Notice verses 12 through 15. They tell me, as a preacher of the gospel, that I need to remind you of these things, even if you know them, and even if you're established in this present truth. Because a fruitless Christian is a terrible thing. And because a doubting Christian is a terrible thing. The Lord Jesus Christ wants you to live a life full of hope, full of confidence. He wants you to be bold in the day of judgment. Bold. First right. John 4, oh, we're going to get to it before the day's over. He wants you bold, and I want to make you bold today. So we have these things repeated to us over and over that we'll remember if you do these things. If these things are in your life, you are going to be in heaven because the wicked never do these things. These things are despised by the wicked. They will never do them out of faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember that the list of eight begins with faith and it's added to faith. The wicked never even get off on the right foot. It doesn't matter if a man gives 15% of his income to UNICEF. That isn't giving that pleases God unless it stems from faith. It doesn't matter what your peers in the office are doing. If they help a little old lady across the street, that isn't charity unless it's done toward God and toward the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. It's all an abomination to him. The plowing of the wicked is sin. Proverbs 21 and verse 4. It's only things done by faith. And if you do the things in this list because you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe his promises... There is no chance of you falling. Shall never fall. But look at what kind of an entrance you're going to get into heaven. Verse 11, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There will be angelic servants helping you into heaven and an abundant entrance into heaven at that. Praise the Lord. I am not going to take time on this point because you're well established in it. The Arminian and Calvinistic scheme that you've got to exercise faith in Jesus Christ in order to go to heaven is not taught in the Bible. Faith is only the first act on which a child of God expresses his obedience toward God. And then it is to be followed with a whole life of godliness. And faith is no different than the rest. Faith is just what gets it started. Obviously, you don't do things toward God unless you first believe God. But the idea that is so common today that if you make a decision for Jesus and if you can date that decision, then you can be sure of your salvation. That is not taught in the Bible. There is nowhere in the Bible that the apostles encourage anyone to believe that they are saved by merely a decision they made for Jesus. Inviting Jesus into your heart, first of all, isn't even taught in the New Testament except for elect 
baptized, born-again believers in a church relationship in the church that was at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. When Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, that verse isn't describing Him knocking at the heart's door of sinners. He's standing at the door of the Laodicean church and knocking and telling them that though they think they are a prosperous church, they are poor and wretched and naked and blind because they don't have a personal, ongoing relationship of fellowship with Jesus Christ. So the, the whole doctrine is an error. It's not found in the New Testament. That sinners that are, un, that are not born again, dead in trespasses and sins, can invite Jesus into their heart. And if they can date that, write it down in the flyleaf of their Bible, or fill out some salvation card in a Sunday school program, that that is the evidence of eternal life. Every minister that ever preaches one of those people into heaven is going to give an account of it when they meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Because without the works of the New Testament following that faith, it is no evidence at all. There's so much more that can be said upon that. Calling upon the name of the Lord, unless it's done by the Holy Spirit of God and results in a changed life, is no evidence of eternal life. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, you'd be amazed. You know, they take Romans 10, 13 and say, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All you got to do, dead sinner, is call upon the Lord right now to save you and you'll be saved. And Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he... Here's, here's what the Bible teaches throughout. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. It's those that do the will of God that are the elect of God. The true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ completely and fully balances and meshes the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Amen. Most theologians throw up their hands and say we don't know how to reconcile it on this side of heaven. But there is one doctrine and only one, just like the Bible teaches us, one faith that reconciles the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. They are not confused and they don't cooperate together. We will not get to heaven partly because of the sovereignty of God and partly because of the responsibility of man. We will get to heaven 100% by the sovereignty of Almighty God through His grace in Jesus Christ and by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit who worketh where and when and how He pleases, like the wind blows. The responsibility of man only gets involved for the glory of God and for the assurance of our souls by the evidence of eternal life. It is not involved in keeping conditions, fulfilling instruments, or using means. Never. None of those things. Follow with me for a moment. There are two ditches, and we want the crown of the road. Every road is crowned so that when you find the yellow line, that's the top part of the road. We want the yellow line. We don't want to fall into the ditch of fatalism, and we don't want to fall into the ditch of Arminianism and Calvinism. You scratch a Calvinist, you'll find an Arminian. Ask a Calvinist, how do you get to heaven? They'll give the very same answer of an Arminian. We've been down that road before. We want the crown of the road. The ditch on the left-hand side is all the responsibility of man. 
since we can't understand the sovereignty of God, and since the Bible says to believe, then if you believe, you're going to go to heaven. If you can remember a day that you invited Jesus into your heart, then you're going to go to heaven. They ignore the sovereignty of God in order to promote the responsibility of man. But look at the way they promote the responsibility of man. They don't teach that you have to have good works. They just teach you've got to make a decision for Jesus. So there's no real effort or motive or emphasis on good works. And they ignore the sovereignty of God. They avoid the passages of the Bible about election and predestination. The world's most unusual university that we have in this city. In their New Testament syllabus that some of us endured when we were there. When it comes to Romans chapter 9 through 11, after it's given lengthy explanations of each of the chapters leading up to that point, summarizes Romans 9 through 11 with one sentence. These three chapters belong to the nation of Israel. Let's go to chapter 12. Bless their hearts. Bless their hearts. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are explained that God has only saved a few of the Israelites called a remnant of grace in those three chapters. And the Gentiles have been grafted in among them. Don't tell me it's only about the nation of Israel. It's about the Gentiles grafted in among them. Because he has vessels of mercy, which were afore prepared into glory, that he has made of the Jews and of the Gentiles. Romans 9.24 So we've got those over in a ditch for man's responsibility because they just can't handle the New Testament. When they see the verses that that you need to believe, you need to be baptized, you need to keep the commandments... They'll, they'll either stop at belief, or they'll stop at belief in baptism like the Church of Christ, or they'll stop with the whole thing. But they ignore the sovereignty of God. Then there are those that are fatalists, and they fall into the ditch of the sovereignty of God. The primitive Baptists often fall into that category. In that, they emphasize the sovereignty of God so far that they end up with the world being full of unconverted elect who haven't believed the gospel and don't obey it. They'll go so far as to end up in universalism, where everyone is saved. Because everyone is elect, they just don't know it yet. Or they'll end up with 50% of humanity. Or every sincere Muslim is a child of God. There is no evidence of that in the Bible. That's fatalism by exalting the sovereignty of God and neglecting the responsibility of man. Well, now, how do they get reconciled? God saved us by His electing, predestinating purpose and decrees in His eternal counsel through Jesus Christ, our Savior and substitute, who died for us on the cross, purchasing legal salvation for us, which is applied by the Holy Spirit during our lifetimes by the powerful work of regeneration. God is entirely sovereign in those works. We then hear the preaching of the gospel. And as a born-again child of God, we hear the preaching, and it is our responsibility to repent and to obey that gospel. And as we repent and obey that gospel, we gain in assurance, we gain in a joy-filled life, we gain in pleasing God, we gain in deliverance from doctrinal error, we gain all these practical benefits by believing and obeying the gospel, but it does not add to eternal life. Every child of God believes to a different degree than every other child of God. There is no perfectly converted child of God. 
Because we all stand in need of further conversion. There's a huge difference between Abraham and Lot. But both are in heaven. Because God elected, Christ justified, and the Spirit regenerated both of them. They're both in heaven. The Bible tells us that. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 tells us that Lot's in heaven. And he got there by the grace of God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived a foolish and wasted life and it cost him dearly. Abraham lived a faithful and virtuous life and it blessed him greatly. And the difference between the two of them is huge. Both David and Samson are in heaven. The one was full of repentance for his sins, and the other kept right on in them. But they're both there. But the life of David was a blessed life, and the life of Samson was a ruined life. But they're both in heaven. How do I know Samson is in heaven? Because he made it to the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You wouldn't think it reading Judges 14 through 17, and you wouldn't think it about Lot reading Genesis 19. But they're both there. The responsibility of man is found in our conversion. When we hear the gospel, we believe it, we obey it, and we convert. We turn our life to conform it to the life that Jesus Christ has commanded for us. That does not add to our eternal life. But that is the only way you can know that you have eternal life. Now, how do we exalt the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? God does all the saving. But the only way that we can know that we're saved is for us to be responsible as Christians and to keep all the commandments as well as we can. Because that is the evidence that God exercised his sovereignty for you. Both get exalted. Because without living a life of faith and godliness... And commitment and obedience and continuing in that obedience, you don't have the evidence of eternal life. Therefore, there is the highest motive put upon the child of God who knows that God saved him by his sovereignty, but knows he must live a righteous life in order to lay claim to it. Because his only evidence is that righteous life. So we get to exalt God as high as he can be exalted. And we get to press men with the duties that the New Testament teaches. Like right here in Second Peter chapter 1, where it says, If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. It doesn't say, If you believed once upon a time, you shall never fall. It doesn't say, If God saved you, you shall never fall. It's all about making your election sure to yourself. You don't make election sure to God. He's already sure of it. He elected you before the world began and wrote your name in the book of life. But how do we make it sure to ourselves? By doing these things. I want to emphasize those words. I want you to know without delaying more than one nanosecond. When someone asks you, how can I know that I am one of God's elect? Take them straight to 2 Peter chapter 1. Read verse 10 to them. Read verse 11 to them. And then back up to verse 5 and get the list of eight things that they should be doing in their lives. I want you to know that. If you already know this sermon, if you're already confident, and if the Lord were to strike you down right now, you'd be bold to stand before him. If you already are bold, then learn these things, review these things, and be ready to give an answer with the certain words of truth. The exhortations and the promises and the threats that are in the Bible are either for practical salvation of deliverance from error and God's chastening judgment, or they're for the evidence of eternal life. 
There is no exhortation, nor promise, nor pressing in order to do something, in order to be saved. It's to have and lay hold of the evidence of eternal life. We'll look at some of those examples. Look at Psalm 10. Now let's start considering a child of God. Psalm 10. I hope you've understood me so far. I don't like taking so long by way of introduction, but I want to remind you of these things, and I do not want our young men to ever let them slip, nor our young ladies. But young men, you're going to lead families, and you better know these things so that you can teach them to your wives and to your children. Psalm 10. There is a huge difference between the children of God and the children of the devil. There is a huge difference between those going to heaven and those going to hell when those going to heaven are living righteously and the way they should. That Thus, the title of that sermon series from three years ago, No Fine Line. It is a great chasm. It's when churches allow and promote carnal Christianity that the children of God begin to wonder what in the world is going on because they see so many so-called Christians living like their worldly pagan neighbors. But when Christians are living the way they should, there is a chasm between the two. And when Bible descriptions are used, there is a chasm between the two. I remember in Ezekiel chapter 13 and verse 22, stay right here at Psalm 10, but I remember over in Ezekiel 13, 22, it says that false religion encourages the wicked not to turn from his wicked way by promising him life. 98% of the churches in America today promise life, promise eternal life to anybody that will make a decision for Jesus. It doesn't matter how you live after that. When it comes to the day of their funeral, if they've wasted the last 50 years but invited Jesus into their heart and fill out a salvation card, that minister will preach them into heaven. The wicked are not pressed to turn from their wicked ways because they're promised life. Same verse says, but the righteous are discouraged by seeing such things going on. In Ezekiel 13, 22, Lord, save us from that error. What we want to consider right now for just a few verses before I get into the passages, I really want you to take home. I just want to remind you that there's a great gulf, a great difference between the wicked and the righteous. If, if you understand anything about Jesus of Nazareth, and you love him, and you believe he's coming again, and you're waiting for that coming, the wicked don't think like that. Here's what the wicked think about. Psalm 10.4 The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. This is one verse out of many describing what we call total depravity. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, he will not humble himself to God. Where was Adam in the Garden of Eden when God came looking for him? Hiding among the trees. When God comes looking for you by a convicting sermon or a convicting passage of Scripture, or by his Holy Spirit convicting you even in your bed, Job 33 says, it happens oftentimes with men. When the God does that, do you go hide in the trees? Or do you know that he's speaking the truth and you admit your error and you confess your sins? Sinlessness is not the evidence of eternal life. Right. No one can be sinless. 
The, the very book that says, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, also says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. It's sinning unconsciously. It's sinning repetitively. It's sinning habitually. It's sinning without remorse. That same chapter says, and we know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Well, I'll tell you that there are murderers with eternal life in them. But they are murderers that repent. Right. It's a murderer that doesn't repent. It's a murderer that continues to go on and has no remorse, guilt, grief, or otherwise for his sin. A wicked man who just lives day to day for himself. That's the kind of sinning that's talked about there. Look what it says. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. They do not go looking for God, either in their beds or in the Bible or in the pew. They sit there and daydream and they doze because they are, their spirits are no higher than this world. They're not born again. They're not saved. Their names are not in the book of life. And they're not going to heaven. There's no evidence of it. The wicked do not seek God. God is not in all their thoughts. Oh, they might be able to write a paper in school about God. They might be able to say the pledge, the flag about one nation under God. They may be able to read their money that says, in God we trust. They may be even able to go to church and praise God from whom all blessings flow. But God is not in all their affectionate, humble, broken, obedient, loving, fearful thoughts. If you're not like that, then you know you're not one of the wicked. If you know that when you think upon God, you think about wanting to obey Him and please Him. And when you think upon God, you think of a glorious being who has every right to do what He does in the universe. When you thank that being for everything good He has done for you, and you confess everything evil that you've done back to Him, that shows that you are totally different from the wicked. It is not a fine line. No one that has loved God is ever going to find themselves under the curse of Jesus Christ in the great day of judgment. Never. There's no one like that in the New Testament. Those wicked people in Matthew chapter 7 that will say to the Lord, 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 have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name done many wonderful works and in thy name cast out devils? They're not appealing to any righteousness. They're not like Job who appealed to his righteousness. They're not like David who said he's rewarded me according to my righteousness. They're not like Nehemiah who said, Lord, remember me for the good that I have done toward thy house. They're calling upon God to remember their ritualistic, ritualistic, external, superficial acts that they've done in religion without even knowing Jesus Christ. Because what's under consideration in Matthew chapter 7 are false prophets. Enough about that passage. That's a problem text. I said I wasn't going there. If you have a problem with Matthew 7, come to me and I'll show you that if you look at the section before, false prophets, the section after, building your house upon sand, it has nothing to do with the child of God that believes in Jesus Christ and seeks to live a holy life. You can't even get yourself into Matthew 7. You can't take a pry bar and force yourself in. It doesn't belong to you. It's Jesus Christ condemning those religious hucksters of his day, those hypocrites, those vipers, those serpents, who could not escape the damnation of hell. They had no humility before God. They made up their own religion. They devoured widows' houses. 
while they were casting out devils. We have a whole bunch of them. You can see them on the religious channels of our televisions. Psalm 10.4 is a good comparison. Look at chapter 14. Psalm 14. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, this is the wicked. There is no God. I mean, when was the last time you said that to yourself? If you haven't said it to yourself, then you don't belong in Psalm 14. You say, well, not all wicked people say this to themselves. Well, just look at their actions. They are reprobate concerning every good work. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. We do not believe in conditional election. We believe in unconditional election because of passages like this that tell us that God looked down from heaven to see if there were any men that did fulfill conditions, but there weren't any. In fact, there was not one. If you find yourself having done good as defined by God, if you have found yourself believing that there is a God and you want to obey Him, then you've just excluded yourself from Psalm 14 and shown that God has elected you and saved you and regenerated you. It's no fine line. It's a huge chasm. Look at chapter 15. Psalm 15. I wish these passages were preached as much as John 3.16. John 3.16 is one of 31,178 verses in the Bible. It is of no more value than the other verses in the Bible. But that's all they know. And so that's all they talk about. That's the verse they want to hold up in the end zone of our football stadiums. Why don't they hold up Psalm 15? Because Psalm 15 is more definitive and more clear about who goes to heaven. Here it is. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? This is great. We're about to get an answer to two questions, and it's who's going to get to go to heaven and be in the presence of God and His worship. Verse 2, He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Psalm 15 is the corresponding cross-reference you want for Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 where it says, If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Because it says here, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. He'll never fall. Why don't they preach these? Because we live in a day of easy believism where all you've got to do is invite Jesus into your heart and they promise them life and wicked people are not pressed to turn away from their wicked ways because as long as they've invited Jesus into their heart, it doesn't matter how holy they live. It doesn't matter how godly they live. It doesn't matter what they do for the church of God. It doesn't matter whether they love the brethren or not. They're going to heaven for a decision. But that is not what the Bible teaches. If you find yourself in Psalm 15 in any way, Psalm 15 is totally set against Psalm 14. Psalm 15 has people doing many good things. Psalm 14 is, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. 
There's a huge chasm there between the two. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ and love His people and love His praise and love His worship, and you love His Word, and you're looking for His coming, and you love to serve His people, all these things add up to tell you, without a doubt, you'll be in heaven. If you do those things out of faith and love toward the Lord Jesus Christ. How about Psalm 24? It says the same thing. Why don't they hold this one up in the end zones? You know, they think John 3.16 is like a Hindu mantra. Like it's got some magical power, but it doesn't have any magical power. They don't even know what the verse means. They don't even know the world that God loved and the world that God doesn't love. They don't know. But look at this passage, Psalm 24. This is just like Psalm 15. Psalm 24 and verse 3. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Oh, here are the questions again. How can I know I'm one of God's elect? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Here's the answer. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. But I, th- I thought Psalm 14 said, there is none that seeketh after God. But this psalm describes those that are seeking after God. Because there's a total difference. If you're here this morning to seek God, you are God's elect. If you're here this morning because you're obligated to be here, or if you're here this morning for any carnal or natural reason, or if you're here for some habit, you're not seeking God. But if you're here this morning to seek God, you're in Psalm 24, and you're not in Psalm 14. Please tell me that that's good enough. John 6. John 6. Are you looking for the loaves, or are you looking for the loaf giver? John chapter 6. Oh, I love John 6. My wife and I were recently talking about what are my favorite sermons that I've preached over the last 24 years, and I said the one from John 6 is in the top 5 or 10. I love that night that I preached this chapter to you and cleared up all the inconsistencies in it so that it was so simple to understand. You know what this chapter says. It tells us that no man can come unto Jesus Christ and believe on Him except the Father which hath sent Jesus Christ were to draw Him to that action. Which means you're His elect. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for more than loaves, for Him, then you're one of God's elect. Verse 26 tells us why this crowd, oh, Jesus had the crowds. You know what? They continually tried to make Him pastor of a megachurch. Continually. But He would, he refused it. He wasn't going to be a pastor of a megachurch where all they wanted to do was have their clubs and their cell units and their motorcycle gangs, and their Starbucks coffee, he wasn't interested in any group of people like that following him. Because John 6 is about what happened after the crowd was fed and got a free meal. You know, there are a bunch of lazy people in this world who love free meals. And those people that love free meals followed Jesus Christ and tried to make him their king. But he refused. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said... Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. That is a belly worshiper. That's the term used by Romans 16 and Philippians 3, a belly worshiper. They're, They're worshiping their carnal appetites more than God. 
they should have looked at the miracles and said, Wow! How do you feed 5,000 men plus women and children till they're full and you have 12 baskets full left over from a little boy's lunch? God must be with this man. Let me fall on my face before him and beg for mercy. Instead, wow, wow, are you full? Kids, are you all full? I know I ate as much as I could and they still took away more. Kids, let's follow this guy. You know, we may be able to live like this the rest of our lives. We didn't even have to work for it. It just kept multiplying. I ate one of those sub sandwiches and then there was another one. You say you're making people sound so wicked. That's 90%. That's 99.5% of all mankind and it's 90% of all Christians. God have mercy upon us. And help us that we're not in that camp. You know, my favorite verse of the Bible, and I just want to explain this to you. Psalm 37 and verse 4. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. I want you to know that the second half of that verse is not why it's my favorite verse. It's the first half of that verse. Delight thyself also in the Lord. There is nothing that I have ever found in my life that can even come close to the joy, the fulfillment, the satisfaction, and the power that comes from delighting in the Lord Himself. Whether He gives me anything about the desires of my heart or not doesn't matter. It truly does not matter. Because delighting in Him because He's a perfect object to delight in. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Are you, no matter what He gives you, He's still worthy to delight in Him. I'm an enthusiastic person. I delight in things. But I want to delight in the Lord. I don't care what He gives me. That's the attitude we ought to have. That's the attitude they should have had in John 6, is my point. When I chase rabbits, i got to look carefully to try to figure out where I was on the road. But when we get back to the road, we're in John chapter 6, and look what Jesus said. You're seeking me. Because you just want to fill your belly. You're a belly worshiper. All you care is about natural things. You don't care about spiritual things. You should have been asking, how in the world did that man do that? God must be with that man. You know what? There was that guy named John the Baptist that told us the time was fulfilled, that the Messiah... Do you think he's the Messiah? Children! Wife! That's the Messiah! You wouldn't care if you were starving. You wouldn't care if you were in an innermost prison in shackles of iron. You'd be singing praises to God like Paul and Silas were. Same chapter. Verse 66. Jesus got tougher and tougher with this crowd of belly worshipers. Oh, he was, he was a wonderful preacher. Amen. He wasn't looking. Do you know what those seekers are in John 6? They're what fill the seeker-sensitive churches of America. They're looking to fill their bellies with a social club that meets on Sundays and serves them Starbucks rather than the Lord Jesus Christ of glory. And that's what he told them. Now, he got harder and harder and harder with them until he was telling them, except you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God, you have no eternal life. And the disciples said, don't you know how hard? They don't understand that. That's a hard saying. He just laid it on thicker. John 6. Don't have time to preach the chapter. Verse 66. From that time, it's beautiful. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Isn't that pitiful? Isn't that terrible? Then said Jesus unto the twelve, chase them down. Tell them that I'll modify the message to increase the crowd. 
Tell them that we'll do things differently next Sunday. Tell them that I'll have an entertainer in here to give his testimony next Sunday so that they won't go away. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? And then Simon Peter answered him. And Simon Peter here is not looking to get another fish fillet, is he? Right. Praise. Oh, sometimes, sometimes Peter's impetuousness is good. And right here is one of the good ones. Can, Jesus just hurt them so bad. They kept asking for another fish fillet. And he kept saying, you need to eat the bread of God that comes down from heaven that I'm giving to you. If you don't believe on me, you're going to starve to death and go to hell. He, he just messed them up so badly that, that the kingdom of God wasn't all about fish fillet sandwiches. That it was about a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Amen. He wasn't there for the fish fillet. He was there for the one that made the fish fillet, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen. Are you, do, I, do I need... I got a hundred. I got a hundred points on this point, like this. Do you need more? Do you see the chasm? There's a group of people that come after Jesus Christ. Their religion is only a name. They are looking to fill their bellies. They're belly worshippers. You can tell them so easily. They doze in church. They sleep in church. They don't make it to every assembly. They don't come early. They don't stay late. They're here out of drudgery. They're not here to see Jesus Christ or to meet him. When you talk to them afterward, all they can do is talk about their jobs, the things of the world. They do not talk about Christ because Christ does not mean anything to them. More important to them is to get a free meal. More important to them is to have a job and to have friends and to talk about their stupid little lives. But those that are truly seeking Jesus Christ want to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Very simple to tell. The church of God is always going to have them. I wish it didn't. But the Bible tells me that they're going to sneak in and creep in among us, and they're creeps. They're strange children. God will get rid of them eventually. Right. And so we wait upon Him. You, can, you know them. Endure them until the Lord exposes them and will get rid of them. But examine your own hearts. Are you here for loaves and fishes? Are you here for any carnal reason? Are you here for any reason but to meet the Messiah of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to learn of Him and to know how you can go out of this place and serve Him better? Then you are in a totally different class. Totally different class. You're like Peter. Oh, to have a church full of Peters. But there, a Judas is going to sneak in, even among the twelve that the Lord picked. Right. He didn't sneak in. And Jesus knew about him all along. Amen. And no one else sneaks into any other church because Jesus knows about them all along. Amen. I'm going to quit my massive list. Sinlessness is not the evidence of eternal life. Right. No one can live sinless. David was a man after God's own heart. Did he have a few problems in his life? And by problems, I mean heinous sins, right. aggravated adultery. Why, whenever I talk about David's adultery, do I describe it as aggravated adultery? Because the Lord described it that way, not with that word. But he said, you had a whole harem of wives, and I would have given you any other woman in Israel that you would have wanted. But why did you take another man's wife? Aggravated adultery. Right. 
aggravated murder by killing one of his 37 chosen men that were his personal bodyguards, Uriah the Hittite. He numbered the nation of Israel when the law of Moses said, Do not number the nation of Israel, because I will deliver you and defend you in battle, and you do not need to know how many divisions you have and how many battalions in those divisions. He numbered Israel, and it cost 70,000 lives. He moved the ark number four. His finger isn't as flexible. Number four, he moved the Ark of the Covenant the wrong way, and a man named Uzzah died in that parade. He was not a good father, and so he raised up a bunch of sons that were hellions in the nation of Israel. He raised up sons that killed each other, raped sisters, and so forth. He had one mess for a family. But I'll tell you what, when God confronted David about his sins, which sin do you want to think about? Which sin do you want to think about? David humbled himself and was a broken and a contrite man. When Nathan the prophet came to him to point out his adultery and his murder, he was a broken man before God. Go read Psalm 51. If you've ever sinned and you have felt like Psalm 51, then you're a child of God on your way to heaven. The wicked never feel the way of Psalm 51 about their sins. The Bible says that all adulterers shall have their part in the lake of fire. But David's going to be in heaven. Why isn't he considered an adulterer? Because Jesus Christ paid for his sin of adultery. And how do we know that Jesus Christ paid for his sin of adultery? Well, the Bible tells us that David's in heaven. But beside that, because we can look at his life and see how repentant he was in Psalm 51. How broken he was when God came to him by Nathan the prophet. How about when he numbered Israel and 70,000 men lost their lives? Do you see him running to that hilltop in Jerusalem, begging God to let that judgment fall upon him instead of upon those men? Do you see him running up there and making sure that he took a run of the Jebusite and paid full market price for that land so that he could offer a sacrifice to God? Do you see him spending the rest of his life gathering materials for the temple to be made because it needs to be exceeding magnificent? That's how adulterers and murderers get into heaven. They don't, that is not how they earn their way into heaven, but that is how they have the evidence. That they're different from other adulterers and murderers and they end up in heaven because God, David was a changed man. David was a born again child of God that sinned wickedly and heinously and foolishly and God chastened him sorely for it. But look at his response. See, it's not sinlessness. It's how you respond to your sins. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for us Jews only, but also for the whole world of Gentiles, is what that second verse means that is abused so many times. It's a lie of the devil to discourage you to think that you are going to live without sin. 1 John 1, 8, 1 John 1, 10. Tell us that if you think that you can live without sin or have no sin, you're a liar, you do not the truth. And the truth is not in you. Chastening for our sins does not prove that we're going to hell. Chastening proves that we're going to heaven. There were dead Corinthians. There were dead Corinthians. And do you know what 1 Corinthians 11 teaches us about the dead Corinthians? The Corinthians abused the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20 to the end of the chapter. They did not come to the Lord's table properly. And so many of them were weak, physically weak. Many of them were sickly, and many of them were already dead. 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus Christ who walks among his seven candlesticks, meaning his churches, he walks among his churches and looks for those that have false hearts, and looks for those who have false lives, and he cut down many of those fruitless fig trees in the church of Corinth. There were many dead. But do you know what 1 Corinthians 11 teaches us? 
You need to see it, don't you? You need to see it. I don't mean that sarcastically or harmfully. I want you to see it. That kind of chastening is proof that they're in heaven. Those dead Corinthians are in heaven. Can I prove it with the Bible? Verse 30, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. That is, they're dead. Just like we learned last Sunday that for, a, for one of God's elect to die, his body is sleeping in the earth. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. If you, would, if you would examine yourself before you come to the Lord's table, the Lord wouldn't deal this way with you of being weak, sickly, or dead. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Notice, verse 32 tells us that the Corinthians were dead and were sickly and were weak, not because they weren't God's elect, but because they were God's elect so that God wouldn't condemn them with the rest of the world. He's treating them totally differently. He's chastening them. It's judgment called chastening rather than judgment that is called condemnation. Verse 32 says when we're judged by the Lord as a father and he chastens us for our sins like this, it's so that we will not be condemned with that we should not be condemned with the world. That is called damnation up there. In verse 29, where it says, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And do you, you know how many Christians have come into the Lord's Supper petrified that they're going to eat damnation upon themselves? That damnation isn't going to hell. That damnation is Jesus Christ striking you with sickness or weakness or death because you've abused the Lord's Supper. But do you know what these people were doing? They had turned the Lord's Supper into a buffet and there were some people stuffing themselves until they were bloated and drunken and there were others that weren't even getting anything. Don't come with, an, with a misunderstanding of this passage. Yes, we should examine ourselves. Yes, we should discern the Lord's body and, and His blood in the two elements of the Lord's Supper. But don't come so fearful. Where's your boldness? That you know you're living for the Lord. You know you're looking to see Jesus Christ in whatever's done around the table. You know that you're remembering his death till he comes. You're not eating damn. First of all, the damnation is an eternal damnation. And second of all, you're not guilty of the crimes of the Corinthians. It's a huge chasm. I wish you could see it. The Lord doesn't want you at his table petrified. He wants you at his tables glorified, thankful for all that he's done for you. He has no standard for the Lord's table that is high to reach. He simply asks, examine yourself to make sure you're not coming with unconfessed sin and make sure you're discerning my, my son's death until he comes. Chastening proves eternal life. It is not wrong for you to be confident about your obedience to God. Job 31. Job 31. There is a false idea of humility that believes that the only way you should ever speak is to say, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Because Paul said that. But that ain't all Paul said. That is not Bible humility. When you are making a point, and you don't have a point to make like Paul made, 
Do you know why God saved Paul after he'd been a Christian killer for a number of years? To set forth an example that God can save anyone. He tells you that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. That's why he said, he saved me, the chief of sinners. You aren't like Paul. You never killed Christians out of animosity toward Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know what else Paul would say about himself? I am not a whit behind the chiefest of the apostles. I labored more abundantly than all the apostles. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I have fought a good fight. And henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge of all, will give me. That's Paul. When he's not making a point about his example to other Christians, when he's simply talking about his life. Is that arrogance or pride? Not at all. It was just a declaration of the facts. He had outworked any other apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wasn't a whip behind them. In fact, he magnified his office on several occasions because he was the apostle to the Gentiles while the others were stuck with the Jewish nation. Job 31. I'm not even going to read it to you. I just want you to look at it. If you were to read Job chapter 31, it's Job defending himself to God and listing all his righteousness. And his problem was not that he was an unrighteous man, and his problem was not that this chapter is not true. His problem was that he barked against God, that it wasn't fair for God to treat him the way that he had treated him. That was his problem. But Job 31 was true. Look at Psalm 18. You should go read Job 31 sometime. I read it at a men's meeting in the last year. It's powerful stuff. It's what a man should be able to say about his life. There was never anyone hungry around Job. He made sure that their bellies were full and warm. There was no widow that didn't have clothes because Job made sure. You, can, you should read Job 31. There's nothing wrong said there. It's just he didn't. He was arguing against God for God doing what he did to him. The answer of Elihu to Job was not, You're such a liar, Job. What you said in chapter 31 isn't true of you. You're a hypocrite. No, he said, God is greater than man, Job, and he's able to do that to you whenever he feels like it. So submit to it, and he'll take it away. If you keep fighting the way you do, he's going to kill you. That's what Elihu explained. David, look at David in Psalm 18. This psalm is so great that it's in the Bible twice. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 22. We work our way down to verse 20. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. Now, do you say that's presumptuous to talk that way? Not if you're living a righteous life. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also upright before him and I kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore hath the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyesight. With the merciful thou wilt show thyself merciful. With an upright man thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure thou wilt show thyself pure. And with the froward thou wilt show thyself froward. David here knew that the difference between him and Saul was enormous. And God had delivered David from Saul and his sons and the Philistines because of David's righteousness. David had occasions on which he could have killed King Saul, and he didn't, because he was merciful. And with the merciful, God was going to be merciful. And David was a righteous man. 
The whole nation of Israel knew that David behaved himself wisely and his name was much set by. The point I'm making right here is that confidence before God is not ungodly. Look at Isaiah 38. You know, we've used Isaiah 38 the last two Sunday evenings in our prayer meetings because Isaiah had a terminal disease. And who said it was terminal? The Lord did. Now, when the Lord says you have a terminal disease, it's curtains. Unless you have faith. When a doctor says you have a terminal disease, he's guessing. When the Lord says you have a terminal disease, he's not guessing. But Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, and I want you to know what he prayed. Here's a summary of it. Verse 3. Well, at verse 2, so that you'll know where I'm, what I'm reading. Isaiah 38, verse 2, Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord, and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth, and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord. And it goes on to say that God added 15 years to his life. Hezekiah, notice his prayer. I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. Does that mean Hezekiah had never sinned? No. When he did sin, he confessed his sins, repented of them, and did whatever sacrifices were necessary for them and continued right on in a course of righteousness before God. And he appealed to that. Hey, have you ever read the book of Nehemiah? To find Nehemiah saying, Remember me, O Lord, for the good that I have done toward the house of God. Have you read it to know that that's there? So I don't have to turn you to it? Amen. That kind of confidence is not ungodly confidence. That is good confidence. When we come back after our break, we are going to look at five passages of Scripture that I want you to take home with you and remember to turn to them when you're wondering about whether you're a child of God or one of His elect or in the book of life or when someone else asks you those questions. May the Lord give you a ready answer so that you can comfort their faith and increase their faith and direct them into the paths of righteousness.